it. Good morning. I want to first say thank you to the numerous people who prayed for me this week in preparation for this. I had several people come to me this morning and tell me they had been praying for me. And uh, I think they were praying maybe for themselves too um, because they knew what was about to happen. Um, Thank you, Howard, for reading that for me. Today, most of us are at least somewhat familiar with electronic technology. Most of us have a smartphone or a smartwatch or a laptop or a tablet that we use on a fairly regular basis. Most everyone you know or I know possesses some form of computer, correct? It hasn't always been this way. There may be some among us who don't remember a time when there wasn't a computer nearby at all times. But in the 1980s, computers were fairly rare, at least among the people that I had relationships with. For public high school students in my county, computer classes were offered. These classes introduced us to elementary computer programming concepts. We were taught a computer language known as BASIC. I don't remember much of it, really. But I do remember that there were included in that course of instruction what are known as if-then statements. We were taught to use these if-then statements to tell the computer how to behave given the type of data being entered into it. For instance, if no was entered, the word no was entered via the keyboard, then the computer would display designated characters or words on the screen. Our end-of-year project in this introductory computer programming class was to create an interactive animated program. Our programs were to allow the user to select a numbered item using the computer's keyboard, and an animation corresponding to that number would be displayed on the computer's screen. Due to my fascination at that time with Michael Jordan, a famous basketball player of my era, um, I made a series of animations using numerous if-then statements showing an electronic version of Michael Jordan doing amazing things with a basketball. Um, so what we have here in this passage in Hebrews is divine information that roughly follows the pattern of if-then statements, which, by the way, I'm told are still a part of modern computer programming language. Can anyone affirm that? Yes. yes. Oh, well, okay. Thank you, Joseph. Um, <laughs> We are given some facts, and in light of these facts, we are directed to behave in a certain way, like those computers I programmed in the 80s. In Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, God is giving us truth and then directing us as to how we should respond to that truth. I'm going to read the text once more before we start looking at it a little more closely. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in verses 19 through 20, we see the first equivalent of an if 
statement. Roman numeral one, you have a short outline in front of you, hopefully. And Roman numeral one says, if Jesus sacrificed, the first blank, makes approaching God possible. If Jesus' sacrifice makes approaching God possible. So in verses 19 and 20, we see, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Therefore, Howard mentioned this word in his reading. There it is. Therefore, the word that all preachers love to see because they get to use the old cliche which goes, when you see therefore, you have to look back and see what it's there for. When we see this English word in the translation, um, we do know that it points back to what came before it. So we do need to look at the previous portion of the text or the book to see that to which it is referring. So what I'd like to do is take a really quick survey, like really fast, of the, a really quick review of the book of Hebrews up to this point. So if you're taking notes, you're going to have to use shorthand. I'm not going to stop for very long. But this is just so that you get an understanding of what we've seen from this author up to this point. So um, chapter 1, Christ's superiority to... I'm sorry, here we go. Chapter 1, Christ's superiority to angels. He is also called God in this chapter. Psalm 45, 6 through 7 is quoted where God says to Jesus, your throne, O God. So naturally, superior to angels by nature of his deity. Chapter 2, Christ's sufferings and temptation as a man helps him help us in our temptations. Chapter 3, Jesus is superior to Moses in the way that a son is greater than a servant. Chapter 4, Jesus is our sympathetic high priest and gives grace and mercy. Chapter 5, Jesus' sufferings taught him in his humanity obedience. Chapter 6, God who can't lie made a promise to Abraham and to us who are heirs of the promise. Chapter 7 and 8, Jesus is the greater and better high priest who brings a better covenant than the law. Chapter 9, the Levitical priesthood, priesthood's continuous and repetitive sacrifices couldn't save us, but Christ's offering of himself is once for all secured eternal redemption. And finally, chapters, chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, Christ's sacrifice was complete and sufficient and eliminates the need for any further sacrifice. So we see the author pointing to Christ and his life and his sacrificial death as much better than the law with its continual but ineffective animal sacrifices. So this, therefore, points to Christ and what he's accomplished through his life and death and burial and resurrection. So in verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, brothers, we see that word brothers. Now in the English Standard Version, the author is writing to brothers. So sisters, ladies, you can relax, get out your phone, scroll away. This is just for the men, right? Is, is that true? No, it's not. In some other translations, among them the New American Standard Bible and the New International Version, we see this word translated as brothers and sisters. The Greek word here, Adelphoi, has as its meaning from the same womb. So it refers to all those who have been born again by placing their faith in Christ's finished work. We are womb mates, males and females born into the same family of faith. Ladies, you are included. Put your phones away. Now, if you're reading your Bibles through your phones, you can still have them out. So, um, so confidence. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This word translated confidence has a meaning that Americans should be familiar with. It means freedom of speech. The First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution reads, in part, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. In our nation, it seems this political right of freedom of speech is eroding. Societal, cultural, and political pressures being applied to silence those who would disagree with the prevailing ideology. It's rather sad and disappointing. Freedom to speak freely is a founding principle of this nation. We may lose this freedom. I can't see the future. I don't know. But let's remind ourselves of what is truly permanent and what really lasts. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, it reads, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And here, in Hebrews 10, in this particular part of that word, we see that Jesus has given us freedom of speech that will not erode or be taken away. Christ's work as a mediator, offering himself on our behalf, has provided us the freedom to come to God with confidence. Our sin is no longer a barrier between us and our God. We are his children, and we can go to our Father and ask him for help without hindrance. Holy places. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. These set apart, these sacred places where only the pure may enter. In Herod's temple at Jerusalem, the temple during Jesus' time on earth, there were three distinct areas where worship was conducted, and they were separated by veils or curtains. There was the tabernacle court where the people of Israel bringing their sacrifices were allowed to be. Beyond that, there was the holy place where only priests could enter. And beyond that, there was the most holy place, where also known as the Holy of Holies. The most holy place could only be entered once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest, and only the high priest, brought the proper offering. The veil or curtain was put in place to keep people out, for there, beyond that veil, was the presence of God. Nothing sinful, nothing offensive to God could enter there. Now, when you, as an American, think of a veil, what do you think about? You probably think of a thin, gauzy, semi-transparent piece of fabric that covers the face of a bride at a wedding ceremony, right? I, I can't think of another veil that we usually um, would come across as Americans. This temple veil, however, was quite different. According to the Talmud, which is a book of commentary by rabbis, it's not an inspired book. It's, it's not written by God through men. But it, it could have some value, maybe in this particular instance. Um, according to the Talmud, the veil in front of the Holy of Holies was 60 feet long, 30 feet tall, and 4 inches, t- four inches thick, which is approximately the length of a roll of toilet paper, I measured. Um, according to tradition... These veils were so heavy that it took 300 priests to hang them. When Jesus died, this heavy veil, according to Matthew 27:51, was torn in two from top to bottom. Four inches thick of heavy-duty linen fabric woven together was torn from top to bottom. This was a supernatural act. God tore it to show that now 
the effective sacrifice of his son had been offered and accepted, and access to him was available. God and man were no longer separated. Jesus, through his death in our place, had cleared the way and torn the curtain. In verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. New and living way. So, so there's this new and living way. So what's the old and dead way if there's a new and living way? It's, it's the law, the law. Hebrews 10.1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, but the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And then, in Hebrews 10.8-10, When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he, that is Jesus, added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ's willing sacrifice of his own life has opened the way to God the Father. We are no longer separated by our sin. So that's the first if statement. If Jesus' sacrifice makes approaching God possible, let's on, go on to the next if statement, Roman numeral two on your handout. If Jesus speaks to God on our behalf, if Jesus speaks to God on our behalf. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, notice that is over, not in, over the house of God. In Hebrews 3, 3 through 6, we read, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And as this priest over God's house, Jesus intercedes for us. He speaks to God for us. Hebrews seven twenty three through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest who's been there. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is not someone who sees your problems and hears them and says, hate it for you, but someone who says, I know, I've been there. I understand what you're going through. Jesus has been tempted in every way that we have been tempted, but he never faltered. He never failed. He never sinned. So now we've seen the two if statements, and we arrive at the first then, and and really, I'm using if then so I could throw in that computer analogy. Not that I'm a computer nerd, but, but just to make it more um, interesting. But really, these if statements could actually be since statements. 
The if is not an if. It's a, it's a sense. It's a reality. It's a truth. Jesus' Jesus sacrifice does make it possible for us to approach God. His sacrifice does make it, or, or his sacrifice, or, or Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus does speak to God on our behalf. These things are true. And so since those things are true, then, Roman numeral three, let us move toward God. Let us move toward God. This is Roman numeral three on your hand now. Christ has done astounding things for us. We are sinners who are miserable spiritual failures who couldn't get right with God if our lives depended on it, and by the way, they do. By giving himself for us, he has cleared the path to the Father for those who place their faith in Christ and his work alone. We now have confidence to approach God, and he is our priest. He talks to God on our behalf. And because of these things, we should draw near to God. Before Christ's work, we couldn't. We couldn't get close to God. Our sin and God's holiness prevented it. But now we can. So how do we draw near to God? What, is, what does that mean? Can, can we really get any closer? I mean, God's omnipresent, right? He's right here. He's right next to us. We can't really get any closer to him. Now, what we're talking about here is not spatial relationship. We're not trying to get closer in a, in a, in a time and space sort of way. We're talking about getting closer in a relationship sort of way, of course. Drawing near means becoming more intimate, developing a deeper relationship with God, and this can be done. The Bible speaks in several places about drawing near to God. In Hebrews eleven six, we see, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. A good place to start is actually believing he's real and that he is active on our behalf. He rewards those who want to know him better. In other words, he allows you to know him better if you take steps toward him. Another form of faith is agreeing with what God says. Zephaniah 3, 1 through 2. Woe to her, Jerusalem, who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. Accepting correction from God's word is another way to draw near. Stop disobeying God and start obeying him. In James 4.8, we see that truth expressed in this way. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, this basically means confess your sins and change your mind, that is, repent about them. Stop disobeying God's commands and start obeying God's commands. Drawing near to God means doing what pleases him, knowing what God's word says and obeying it. We should draw near, and we should draw near with a true heart. It says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So what do you think of when you think of heart? You may think of a rock band from the 70s. Um, you may think of emotions or feelings, right? Our heart. You may think of romantic love, the heart that we see on Valentine's Day, which is fast approaching, gentlemen, just so, just so you know. Won't be long now. Get, get ready. Um, 
Perhaps you think of inner desires. Our culture tells us to follow your heart. Do what that inner want, that inner desire tells you to do, right? The word here translated heart is cardia, cardia. Here's what it looks like. Um, We get our English words cardiopulmonary, which refers to the heart and lungs. It's kind of hip to say that you're going to do some cardio when you're going to work out now, which basically means you're doing exercises that get your heart rate up and get your lungs moving. Cardio is short for cardiopulmonary. We use that word too in cardiac, as in cardiac arrest. When we use the the English form of this Greek word, we're generally referring to the blood pump located right about there. Um, In Greek, that is the meaning of this word. But the literal meaning of a word is not always the way it is used. For instance, in our culture, people say, I haven't seen you in a minute. Does that mean it's been 60 seconds since they saw you? No, they mean it's been a while. Some time has passed between the last time I saw you and now, usually days, weeks, months, something like that. Cardia appears over 800 times in the New Testament, and it is never used to refer to the four-chambered blood-pumping organ in our chests. It is always used figuratively, and it refers to the mind, the inner self, the will, the intentions. So the author is calling for a true heart or a true mind. That's what he's calling for. A heart made of truth. That's the Greek phrase here. A heart that is made of truth. How does one get a heart that is made of truth? Where is truth to be found? In that heart? No. Truth is not in you. Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth, at the trial before his crucifixion? Jesus had already answered Pilate's question a chapter earlier when he said to his father in prayer, your word is truth. God's written word is the truth. The way to get a mind made of truth is by reading the word of God, by meditating on it by studying it, by spending time in the presence of others who do the same and talking about and listening to the word preached, kind of like you're doing right now. We get a mind of truth by filling our minds with truth. That's how you do it. So here's my question. How much truth are you putting into your mind? How much Bible reading are you doing? How much study of the Bible, how much meditation on the Bible is part of your regular routine of life? Do you meet together with your brothers and sisters each week to hear the word proclaimed? Some of you are doing that today. Good job. That's a a great way to get your, your heart made out of truth. But like I said before, we are not naturally truthful. And we don't get more truthful by waiting for it to just happen to us. The world around you is actively trying to change your mind and replace God's truth with their own truth, or even encouraging you to find your own truth. You need to actively fight lies with truth, replace lies with truth. We are called to make truth intake a regular and frequent habit 
full assurance of faith. That's the next phrase we come across. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. As has often been said, faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. If Caleb Sanders makes you a desk, it is going to be strong and stable. I speak from experience. The wood will be solid and treated so as to be waterproof. You can use that desk for its intended purpose, that is placing objects on it or bearing down on it, with confidence, knowing that Caleb, a skilled craftsman, formed it to meet the challenges all desks must face. If you're entrusting yourself to Jesus, you can know your life is in capable hands. The entire book of Hebrews up to this point, as we saw, has given reason after reason that Christ can be trusted to save those who place the full weight of their faith on him and the work he has done. Faith in Christ is never misplaced. Sprinkled clean, that's the next phrase we come to. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. A reference here to the ceremonial cleansing in Old Testament priestly rituals. Priests would sprinkle worshipers or objects with water to make them ceremonially clean. God speaks in the book of Ezekiel of a coming day when God would sprinkle clean his people and give them new hearts and put his spirit within them. In Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. This Old Testament proclamation finds its fulfillment in the New Testament. God has indeed instituted the new and living way and cleansed those of us who place their faith in Jesus and his atoning work on the cross. He has put his spirit within Christians and has given us a tender heart that can obey him. This cleansing also washes our conscience the word translated evil in evil conscience, um, where it says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That Greek word is poneros, and it is derived from the Greek word meaning pain. It's the same word used in the Gospels to describe demons, fallen angels, evil spirits. These spirits that inflict pain on those they inhabit or possess. Before Christ... We had a conscience that always hurt because it was always aware of sin and failure. Christ's work has washed the conscience clean. He has paid for that sin that brought pain and misery to us. Next phrase, our bodies washed with pure water. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's not just our hearts, our minds, our cardia that have been cleansed, but our bodies too. Sins are committed by our spirits and our bodies. Christ saves and redeems both. Salvation isn't just spiritual, it's physical. Our bodies will one day be redeemed 
and glorified, and they will work like they're supposed to and will finally be instruments of obedience. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists several sins, all that involve the body, and states that as believers in Jesus, we have been washed of these. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, that is, made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Roman numeral number four. Then let us grip the truth tightly. Then let us grip the truth tightly in verse 23. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast. Hold fast carries with it the idea of holding down or arresting someone. No, I'm not going to ask how many of you have been arrested. Um, It points to an urgency, a determination to detain that individual. There are consequences for letting go of a criminal. You secure them so they don't escape and commit more crime. So the author is calling for us to grip tightly and maintain that grip on something. That something is the confession of our hope. The word translated confession means to say the same thing. It's a form of agreement. So that criminal that's been arrested later, when he confesses to that crime, he is agreeing with the facts of his misdeeds, with the reality of what he's done. I agree with the facts and the police and lawyers who uncovered and documented those facts that I committed this crime. That's what a confession is. I agree. You're right. I did it. So the author is calling for the readers, that is you and I, to hold tightly to reality with which we agree, something we confess. It is called the confession of our hope. What is the confession of our hope? What is it that we agree with that gives us hope? It's none other than the gospel the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are called here to hold on to this as if our very lives depended on it, and they do. The gospel saves us. Our faith in Christ's finished work is indeed our hope. Now, when we English speakers think of hope, we often think of it in a wishing and, oh, please let this happen kind of way, right? When someone gets seriously sick, and the outcome is uncertain, we talk about hoping that there will be a cure. That is not this Greek word. This Greek word, elpis, has to do with finding confidence in what is certain and will surely come to pass. Our hope in Christ is a certainty. He has saved us and one day will deliver us from this body of death, as Paul describes it. When it will happen is not known to us. But that it will happen is absolutely certain. What makes it certain? Is it because we're really good at believing? Is it because our faith is so strong? No. Again, faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. 
who Christ is makes this hope a certainty. The last part of verse 23 reads, for he who promised is faithful. He is Christ and is able to do what he promised he would do. We can trust firmly in the gospel because the gospel is backed up by the good, faithful, and all-powerful Christ. No foundation is more firm. We can place the full weight of our faith in Jesus, God the Son. He can't lie. Hebrews 6, 17 through 18 says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. In John 3, Christ promises eternal life to those who place their faith in him. He says, whoever believes in him, that is in Jesus, will not perish but have eternal life. There is nothing more worthy of your faith than this promise by Jesus Christ, God in human, God in human form the eternal Son of God. Roman numeral five, then let us scheme to foster good in our brothers and sisters. Let us scheme to foster good in our brothers and sisters. Verse 24 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Another fitting response to who Christ is and what he has done is to look for ways to motivate our brothers and sisters to love and good works. Consider here carries the idea of thinking carefully, pondering, spending time and thought. Does anybody do that anymore? Spending time and thought and coming up with the best way to motivate a person. All right, got lost. Excuse me. There we go. All right. The title of this sermon is If Then. And I explained at the beginning, for those who may have missed it or have forgotten it, that this language is drawn from the language of computer programming. When you're programming a computer, you use if-then statements to tell the computer what to do given certain input. So if you want a computer to do a certain thing, you simply tell it to do so by programming it in a certain way. Do people work the same way? Can you just push a button on a person and have them do what you want them to do? Sadly, no. Um, If this is the case, I haven't found that button. If someone knows where this button is, will you please get with me after the service? Um, No, people are all motivated in different ways. To personally motivate an individual, you need to get to know that individual and to find out how they operate, what makes them tick. Um, This personal knowledge will give you clues on how to come up with the best words to say or actions to take to motivate that person. Now, this method can be misused. When people develop relationships so they can learn how to best get their friends to do what they selfishly want them to do, that is actually known as manipulation. I think we all know people who do this. We may be those people who do this. But here... God is calling for us to use our friendships for good, using our powers for good, to drive people to do good and to show love. Jesus called his disciples to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. He wants us to use our intelligence to further the kingdom of God by driving our brothers and sisters to love others and do good. 
We're to tailor the way we seek to motivate people towards love and good works using the personal knowledge gained through our relationships with them. God works among us in the same way. He doesn't give us all the same life circumstances, but sends tailor-made events into our lives to develop us and make us more like his son, Jesus. How deep and helpful are your Christian relationships? When you talk to your friends, are you looking to push them toward God? Are you doing so based on what you know best motivates that person? Roman numeral six. Then let us encourage each other face to face. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Neglecting, not neglecting to meet together. This word could also be translated abandon or desert, not the treat, but to leave, to walk away. This meeting together is what we're doing now. We're gathering for the purpose of worshiping God and encouraging our brothers and sisters. We've all neglected to do this thing we're doing today. We miss church meetings for not-so-legitimate reasons, such as, I had a rough week, and I just need to decompress, and Sundays are just the best day for me to do that. Or, I stayed up late last night, and I really need to rest up for the work week. Or, I have a hangover. If that is your excuse, there are probably some other choices in your life you need to evaluate. Um, or my girlfriend or boyfriend is on vacation and won't be at church this week, so why even show up? Or I don't like the preacher. No comment. So when you don't go to church for selfish or trivial reasons, have you ever thought of the fact that you're abandoning or deserting your brothers and sisters? Each Sunday is a family reunion. We get to be around our blood relatives, Jesus' blood. As with all family reunions, there are people there you would just prefer not to see or interact with, but that is not a reason to avoid the reunion. Perhaps you are one of the people their brother or sister really does want to see, or maybe you're the other type. Perhaps someone is particularly encouraged by your presence, and you just don't know it. God can use you in that way, and he may very well be doing so. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, habit or custom. We all, sometimes, as we said before, are absent from church for various reasons. But the author here is speaking of those who have made being absent a habit or a custom. Do you come to church even when you don't want to? In the past year or so, there have probably been days when you just didn't want to come. And not just this past year, but just all the years of your life. You just didn't feel like it. Or do you make a decision to come to church whether or not you feel like it when it's time to get up on Sunday morning? Don't do that. I encourage you to make a standing decision for your own good and for the good of your brothers and sisters that you will come to church on Sunday mornings so that you can be encouraged and encourage others in their faith in Christ. Having each other is one of the benefits of believing in Jesus. 
Make sure you're taking full advantage of this benefit. Encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. The word translated encourage in Greek is parakaleo, and it has as its meaning to call someone to come close to you. Like, hey, come over here. In usage, it carries the idea of nearness or summoning someone combined with pleading, urging, and comforting. The idea of nearness reminds us that we are called to be together, to be near each other physically. There is encouragement in simply being in the presence of our family members, having physical proximity to each other. During the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 and 2021, we saw firsthand what forced separation did. It in some sense convinced us that we could go without being together. It got us comfortable with the idea of virtual church. Some church attenders became convinced that since they'd gone without meeting together for a year or two, they could go on without it from here on. Did you get comfortable with the idea of sleeping in on a Sunday and staying in your pajamas while you virtually attended a worship service? As a recovering hermit, I have to say that it held some attraction for me. Our custom became, because of this forced separation, the abandonment of physically meeting together. Some, according to studies, never went back. They chose to forsake the assembling of Christ's people. Following Peter's confession that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, we see Jesus in Matthew 16, 18 saying, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus says, I will build my church. Church is the word ekklesia, which means an assembly or a congregation. It's made up of two Greek words. One is ek, E-K, out from and to is what that means, and kaleo, to call. The idea is that people are called out of one group to be a part of another gathering, another group, another assembly. We are called to be together in body, not just in spirit. Christ's assembly is indeed that, a gathering together of those that have placed their faith in Christ for the purpose of encouraging each other to love and good works. We are supposed to gather for encouragement all the more as we see the day drawing near. Which day is the author referring to? Is he talking about Sunday, the day when we assemble, so that on Monday you're not quite calling people as strongly, but by Saturday you're like, you've really got to come to church, so you're all the more encouraging people. Note, note that at least in some translations, day is capitalized. There's a capital D there, meaning that it's pointing to a specific day in the future, a day that is drawing near. The day being referred to here is most likely the day when Christ calls his ecclesia, his assembly, out of this place and takes them to be in another place with him. The rapture, the removal of the church from the presence of sin into his glorious presence. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, it reads, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Every day gone by is one day closer to Christ's return. That day is drawing near, whether you feel it or not. 
So each Sunday assembly should be one where we encourage each other to meet so much more than we did the week before. We are called by Christ to be together in mind or heart and body. These meetings are preparation for a time I'm sorry, these meetings are preparation for and a time to remind each other of that rapidly approaching day when this life of sorrow and pain will finally be over. So let's take a look at it all at once. If, if Jesus' sacrifice makes approaching God possible, and if Jesus speaks to God on our behalf, then let us move toward God. Let us grip the truth tightly. Let us scheme to foster good in our brothers and sisters, and let us encourage each other face to face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book of Hebrews. We thank you for what it has told us here today about who your son is and how we should respond in light of that truth. Thank you for the church, the assembly that you have given to us. Thank you for using it to encourage us to be more like you, to do good things, to, to preach the gospel to others and to ourselves. Help us to do that this week, God, and help us to assemble here next Sunday again to encourage each other to prepare for that day when you take us from this place into your presence. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen.